Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. We'll begin today's show with my take on the tax bill. We want to give you, the American people, a giant tax cut for Christmas. We'll follow that up with a tour around the world, starting in Russia with President Putin's press conference. It went on and on and on for almost four hours, so there is much to discuss. Also, Iraq declares victory over ISIS. All that with a terrific panel. Also, Steve Bannon's candidate loses the race for Alabama's Senate seat. Is the pull of populism fading in America? How is it doing on the other side of the Atlantic? We will take a look. Then, you've heard all the horror stories from women in the workplace. We'll tell you why they are important for a whole different reason, an economic reason. I'll explain. And the stock market is at an all-time high. The Dow, S&P, and Nasdaq keep hitting record highs. Is this a Trump boom or is it a Trump bubble ready to burst? Two top experts, Morgan Stanley's Richir Sharma and Goldman Sachs' Abby Joseph Cohen, will debate. But first, here's my take. If the Republican tax plan passes Congress, it will mark a watershed for the United States. The medium and long-term effects of the plan are clear. A massive drop in public investment, which will come on the heels of decades of declining spending as a percentage of GDP on infrastructure, scientific research, skills training, and core government agencies. The United States cannot coast on past investments forever, and with this legislation, we are ushering in a bleak future. The tax bill is expected to add at least $1 trillion to the national debt over the next 10 years. And many experts believe that the real loss to federal revenues will be much higher. We can expect big spending cuts in the near future, which would happen on top of an already dire situation. As Gary Bertles of the Brookings Institution points out, combined public investment by federal, state, and local governments is at the lowest point in six decades relative to GDP. The United States is at a breaking point. In August, the World Bank looked at 50 countries and found that America will have the largest unmet infrastructure needs over the next two decades. Look in any direction. According to the American Road and Transport Builders Association, the United States has almost 56,000 structurally deficient bridges, about 1,900 of which are on interstate highways, and all of these are crossed 185 million times a day. 
there is no better indication of the U.S. government's myopia than the decline in funding for research. Research and development topped 10 percent of the national budget in the mid-1960s. It is now under 4 percent. This is happening in an environment in which other countries, from South Korea to Germany to China, are ramping up their investments in these areas. A new study finds that China is on track to surpass the U.S. as the world leader in biomedical research spending. When I came to America in the 1980s, I was struck by how well American government functioned. When I would hear complaints about the IRS or the FAA, I would often reply, have you ever seen how badly these bureaucracies work in other countries? Certainly compared with India, where I grew up, but even compared with countries like France and Italy, many of the federal government's key officers were professional and competent. But decades of criticism, congressional micromanagement, and massive underfunding have taken their toll. Agencies like the IRS are now threadbare. The Census Bureau is preparing to go digital and undertake a new national tally. But it is hamstrung by an insufficient budget and has had to cancel several much-needed tests. The list goes on and on. Now, there are genuine problems beyond underfunding. The cost of building infrastructure in America is astronomical. But during the Depression, World War II, and much of the Cold War, a sense of crisis and competition focused America's attention, and it created a bipartisan urgency to get things done. Ironically, at a time now when competition is far more fierce, when other countries have surpassed the United States in many of these areas, America has fallen into extreme partisanship and embraced a know-nothing libertarianism that is starving the country of the essential investments it needs for future growth. Those who vote for this tax bill, possibly the worst piece of major legislation in a generation, will live in infamy as the country slowly breaks down. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. One of the most highly anticipated events every year for foreign affairs junkies is Russian President Putin's annual press conference. The 2017 installment was held on Thursday, and it was a classic Putin spectacle, lasting right around four hours. During that time, he answered dozens of questions. There was even a question about GPS. Alas, it wasn't our GPS, instead about the legality of putting a GPS tracker on a cow. Anyway, we'll talk about the substance of the press conference and much more with today's terrific panel. Susan Glaser is the chief international affairs columnist at Politico, a former Moscow bureau chief for The Washington Post, and the co-author of Kremlin Rising. Luke Harding is a Guardian foreign correspondent. He has a new book called Collusion, Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Donald Trump Win... And here with me in New York is David Miliband, the former foreign secretary of the United Kingdom. He is now president and CEO of the International Rescue Committee, and he has a terrific new book out called Rescue, Refugees and the Political Crisis of Our Time. Um, Susan, let me start with you. What struck you most about, uh, about the, the conference? Certainly to me, the references to Trump personally and the Democrats were pretty unusual. 
Well, I think they were extraordinarily unusual. I mean, Vladimir Putin, of course, often talks about the United States at these end-of-year press conferences, usually to bash them or to accuse the United States of encircling Russia or in engaging in hostile acts in some way. He definitely has not used it as a platform in the past for praising the president of the United States for the good performance of the American stock market. And it was so directly on theme with the kind of message that Donald Trump is usually telling us about himself. It was, it was as if they had coordinated. Uh, Luke, and then Trump's phone call back to him, it all, it, it felt um, bizarre as if this was a kind of uh, a personal bond, you know, and a very partisan one. Putin attacked the Democrats. Yes, uh, this is one of the great mysteries of the 21st century. Why is Donald Trump so nice to Vladimir Putin, chatting on the phone, uh, agreeing on everything, when he's so rude about practically every other world leader, including Theresa May in Great Britain? He doesn't much like Angela Merkel, and yet they, they chat on the phone. And, and it, it's, it's, it's curious. It's curious. And I, I think the answer is, firstly, that, that Putin has leverage over Donald Trump. Uh, I really think that's the case. Uh, and secondly, I think he has what you might call kind of psychological mastery. As Susan was saying, he says the kind of things that Donald Trump wants to hear. He, he says that these attacks uh, from inside America are an attempt to delegitimize uh, Donald Trump. And of course, that's what Trump himself thinks. David Melvin, do you recall of a, a head of state taking kind of entering into a domestic dispute in quite the same way. And Putin really attacked the Democrats, said this is an attempt to delegitimize Trump. Trump is doing a great job. He's brought the stock market up. I can't recall this kind of thing. Well, I certainly can't recall the chief booster, the chief international booster of a U.S. president being a country that has been trying to destabilize its democratic institutions. I, one thing occurred to me, I wonder how successful Vladimir Putin really thinks his play has been, because obviously he has caused a lot of instability. But remember, if we'd been meeting a year ago, we would have said, are the Russian sanctions really going to carry on? Where is American opinion going to be on the Russia sanctions? Will Congress stand up for that? And if you look at it at the end of the year, he hasn't actually had sanctions relief, which was one of the top things that he was looking for at a more specific level than the general uh, undermining of Western democracy. Um, but Susan, he has managed to get a certain um, kind of breathing space because Trump is so involved in other things and Trump is withdrawing American, uh, America's role in the world, which does give Russia more scope. Uh, did you get that feeling from the conference? Oh, absolutely. Look, remember, Vladimir Putin is facing a re-election, uh, no matter how much uh, it's already a foregone conclusion in March. And I, I think it sets himself up to be the alternative to American power around the world. He's clearly trying to pay the, the leader and the peacemaker in the Middle East, for example, now, and ratifying the victory of his uh, uh, proxy, Bashar Assad, in Syria. At the same time, here in Washington, uh, you know, you have this incredible spectacle, incredible spectacle of basically Donald Trump's administration pursuing one Russia policy and the president of the United States basically not being on board with it. Uh, Luke, let me give you a chance because you have this book out where you believe that the leverage that, that Putin has over Trump is real. What is what is the strongest case you would make about that that collusion as you describe it in the in your book? Well, I think it's financial. I think Robert Mueller is looking very actively at what dealings Donald Trump did with Russia in the past, especially after 2008 when he was broke. I think there's the whole question that's been debated all year of compromise, compromising material, uh, alleged 
uh, buggings of, of, of what may have happened during Trump's kind of Moscow visit in 2013. Uh, and I think there's the, the, there's the sort of basic question of, of the, the sort of Russian influence on the Trump team, wherever you look, whether it's Rex Tillerson, the U.S. Secretary of State, who has an order of friendship from from Vladimir Putin or Michael Flynn, who's now admitting lying to the um, FBI, who was taking money under the table from Russian interests. It, it, it seems almost as if Trump's cabinet was was put together from from Moscow. And, and we still haven't seen a single occasion when Trump has criticized Russia or Russian foreign policy or Putin personally. Uh, and I can confidently predict we will not see that. Yeah, that is really the central prediction. It would be so easy to dispel some of these rumors by doing that, and yet he doesn't. Anyway, we, we, we have to take a break. When we come back, we're going to switch courses somewhat. Iraq declares victory over ISIS. Is it real? What is happening in the Middle East? I'll ask David Miliband, among others. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. And we are back with Susan Glaser, Luke Harding, and David Miliband. David, um, two years ago, we were all obsessed with the idea that ISIS was taking over the world, Syria was falling apart. Um, you know, the situation seemed pretty bleak, particularly with regard to ISIS. Is it fair to say, as the Iraqi uh, prime minister now says, that ISIS has been defeated, it is essentially destroyed? Well, I think it's been defeated militarily, but it hasn't yet been defeated politically and ideologically. The fight for the soul and the allegiance of Sunni communities across the Middle East is very much alive. Uh, we've got people on the ground uh, in uh, Syria, in Iraq, uh, across the region, and there's no doubt that the danger of ISIS 2.0, 3.0 remains, because although uh, there's been a significant degrading of its military capacity, although its ability to occupy parts of Iraq has been uh, ended, it remains a force that has the ability to project power and project military power in a dangerous way. Um, your book is about refugees and about the responsibility we should all feel around the world. Um, do you get the feeling uh, 2018 is going to see a let up on, in the extraordinary flows of refugees we've seen over the last two years? Well, I wish. I mean, the truth is the trends that are driving the refugee crisis, the crisis of diplomacy that means wars are burning for longer, uh, the extraordinary tumult within the Islamic world that we've just been talking about, the weakness of the international system, our UN and other institutions weaker than ever, the fragmentation in the Security Council, all those trends point to long-term displacement and growing numbers of people. And of course, one of the things that is striking is not just that political crisis produces humanitarian crisis. Untended humanitarian crises then become the source of political instability. And just last month, the King of Jordan says his country is at boiling point from the refugee crisis that is uh, 600,000 refugees in, in Jordan. So I think that 2018 portends uh, real danger that the root of these crises isn't going to be addressed. The, diplomatic world is in stasis, that's the danger at the moment, but also that the destabilization from these humanitarian crises continues. Uh, Susan, uh, one of the things uh, Putin has said is that he, he won in Syria. Uh, he's quite boasting, he was boasting about that. Is, that. is that a fair assessment, do you think? You know, I've also heard that from many people around the region who believe that Vladimir Putin won uh, and that now what he's turned his attention to is dictating, if you will, the terms of the peace. And I thought it was an incredible moment a few weeks back when he hosted uh, Assad 
who came out of Syria for one of the only times during the civil war, came to Sochi uh, to talk peace terms, if you will, with Vladimir Putin. He also had a phone call then with Donald Trump. This was right before American Thanksgiving. And it seems to me that, that this is a clear-cut example of Russia and Putin directly taking on a role that in the past would have defaulted to the United States. Luke, you, 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 you see uh, Putin as taking advantage of, uh, how would you describe it, American distraction or lack of strategy in the Middle East? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Putin over the last 17 or 18 years has, has been on a great patriotic project to, to make Russia great again, if you like. And um, th that's gone through several phases, uh, sometimes less successfully, sometimes more successfully. We've seen wars in Georgia. We've seen Putin grab Crimea in 2014. Uh, and now I think the international stage is largely free for him to do pretty much as he wishes. And, and, and th this, is, this has been his goal for so long, to have Russia as a kind of equal pole to the U.S. To, I mean, Russian analysts talk endlessly about how they want a kind of multipolar uh, world. Um, and he's pretty much kind of got that now. And he's taking advantage of, of Donald Trump's internal weakness. Uh, David, he will. He has been in power now for 18 years. He will be in power for another six at least. Um, you've you've uh, conducted diplomacy at the highest levels. It matters when you have that much experience. I mean, this guy has been around the block several times. When there's no nobody else who's running a major country who's been around for 18 years. Well, not just the 18 years he's been, but the six years that are coming. And I think. It's important to see the Russia-China relationship, not just the Russia-America relationship. The temptation is that we look at the bilateral. But of course, this is the year 2017 in which President Xi Jinping committed that China would be the status quo power in the international system. He went to Davos and he said, I want to boost the multilateral institutions. And I'm looking next year to see how does a Russian leader with six years ahead of him, how does a Chinese leader with at least five, and many people think 15 years ahead of him, what what sort of relationship do they have? Because in a way, it's a marriage of convenience at the moment. And a rising China is going to find Russia a pain in the same way that a challenged America finds Russia a pain. It's a, it is really is a whole new world with all these, all these countries trying to um, search for the influence that the United States, in a sense, has ceded. Um, thank you all very much. Fascinating conversation. David Miliband, Susan Glasser, Luke Harding. Next on GPS, we will explore why all of the mistreatment of women in the workplace that we've been hearing about recently is not just bad legally, morally, ethically, but it could be hurting the United States economically. I'll explain when we come back. Now for our What in the World segment. As more and more allegations of sexual harassment, predation, and misconduct come to light, the United States in particular is beginning to have important conversations about what effect these incidents have had on women in the workforce. And it turns out that this is actually a conversation that is crucial not simply for reasons of fairness and morality, but also for economic productivity. According to a new report out by Standard & Poor's, women who leave the workforce or never enter it have cost the United States greatly. S&P says that the U.S. economy would be 1.6 trillion bigger today if women in America entered and stayed in the workforce at the same rate women in Norway have. What does that mean? If we look at the OECD numbers for labor force participation rate 
of women in Norway and the United States, we can see that the two countries had essentially the same percentage of working-age women in their labor forces in 1972. But after that, Norway's percentage of women working grew much faster than America's and stayed much higher. Indeed, for the past two decades, American women have been gradually staying at home as the country's female participation rate dropped by nearly three percentage points. During the same time period, female workforce participation rate in countries like Estonia, France, and Canada were up by more than six percentage points. So why is America lagging behind? Well, the study's authors told GPS that there are many reasons, from male gender bias in workplaces to tax disincentives for a second income earner in a given household. Of course, there are also reasons that have nothing to do with gender, and it's important to note the male participation rate dropped as well. But the study's authors also note that the United States remains the only OECD country with no legally mandated paid maternity or parental leave. S&P highlights countries like Sweden, which offer subsidized daycare, generous childcare support, and workplace flexibility. If the United States had implemented similar policies, according to a paper cited in the report, the participation rate among women aged 25 to 54 in 2010 could have been 6.8 percentage points higher than it actually was. And such policies might help women enter more lucrative fields, work more hours, and get promoted to higher levels, all of which would help narrow America's pay gap between women and men. The Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts that the downward trend of women aged 16 and older in the workforce will continue for the next decade. One other trend that, while not downward, remains too low is women's participation in the sciences. Companies are reportedly desperately searching for women to fill STEM jobs, science, technology, engineering, and math, and just can't find them. Only 14% of women aged 25 to 64 in the U.S. have studied a STEM field to begin with, a recent OECD report shows. Next year, some 2.4 million STEM jobs will go unfilled, according to the Smithsonian Science Education Center. So the solution to America's growth problems might be simpler than we think. Women, and particularly women in STEM. Remember, America's supersized growth that continued for many decades after World War II was due in no small part to demographics. The nation had a relatively high birth rate. It was a nation that was highly attractive to immigrants. It was a relatively young nation. But today, America's population is growing at a slower pace. So the best path forward would be to better utilize the people who are already here, get more women into the workforce, and then sit back and watch the economy boom. Next on GPS, what do Alabama's new senator-elect Doug Jones and France's president Emmanuel Macron have in common? Find out when we come back. Want a daily dose of Fareed and his team? Now you can get it with Fareed's Global Briefing, the newsletter that gives you the best insight and analysis on global affairs. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed to sign up. I am guessing that it pains former Trump White House advisor Steve Bannon to congratulate his ideological opponents at the Democratic National Committee, but that is just what he did on Wednesday, saying the DNC did an amazing job of organizing. He was referring to the incredibly contentious, controversial, and close race in Alabama over a Senate seat. 
Bannon and his former boss, President Trump, backed Roy Moore, a conservative Christian candidate who has been accused by several women of pursuing sexual relations with them when they were teenagers and a lot worse. Moore lost. Doug Jones, a Democrat, will be the first senator from that party to represent Alabama in some 25 years. So have we hit peak populism in America or elsewhere? Joining me are Zanny Minton Beddoes, the editor in chief of The Economist. She joins us from London. And David Frum is in Washington today. He is a senior editor at The Atlantic. His new book, Trumpocracy The Corruption of the American Republic, comes out in January. David, can we make too much of the Roy Moore loss? Is this an unusual case? After all, Trump won Alabama by 28 points. Roy Moore was, as I said, a very bad candidate. And yet, He's within a you know, point of winning. Um, Roy Moore, who is 70 years old, is a backward-looking candidate. His overwhelming issues were the place of evangelical religion in society and restoring a repressive sexual morality that he may not have practiced, but that he certainly talked a lot about. But does it tell you, David, that the Trump coalition is waning in some way, or, or is it still strong and this was just a bad test case? Well, Donald Trump's own personal popularity is obviously an issue. In some exit polls, uh, Trump was showing himself at 48 percent approval rating in Alabama, one of the most conservative states in the country. He is obviously dragging down um, his own fitful performance. But the power of the issues Donald Trump discovered, uh, both in this country and in Europe, those issues do seem still to have a lot of, of power. And we saw, for example, the performance of the far right parties in the German election. And although... Um, that populists were defeated in France, they are doing twice as well, approximately, as they were doing just 15, 20 years ago. Zanny Mintenbetters, when you look at this um, from Europe, do you, do you think that those issues that David Trump talked about, which, after all, it is immigration, which is at the heart of the rise of this right-wing populism in Europe, is that still strong? Has it peaked? Is it waning? How would you describe it? You know, it's a really good question. Have we hit peak populism? And it's one that uh, people like to ask themselves constantly on both sides of the Atlantic. And like David, I would caution reading too much into Alabama, where there was a peculiarly awful candidate. I would also caution too much against reading too much into the relative quiet we've seen in Europe. David's absolutely right that, you know, the AfD, the far-right party in Germany, did remarkably well. But we have seen Emmanuel Macron's victory in France. He, he beat the populist Marine Le Pen. And indeed, his approval ratings are rising. So I think it's been a sort of plateauing perhaps this year. But it's worth remembering that this is against an environment of remarkable economic growth, kind of on both sides of the Atlantic, the economy is doing very well. On both sides of the Atlantic, people's real incomes are getting better. And those underlying cultural questions that are driving much of the populist backlash are still there. So I think of this as a sort of multi-year phenomenon, and it's certainly not going away. Zani, let me ask you about one thing you talked about, which was Macron's rising approval ratings. They've gone almost from 25 percent uh, to 50 percent, uh, while he has announced some very tough uh, economic reforms, some bitter medicine. What do you attribute that to? Well, I think Macron, history will look back and Macron will be deemed to be one of the most extraordinary figures in Europe right now. Now, he may be a complete failure. He may not end up being able to achieve what he's laid out. But he came from nowhere, as you know. He basically broke up the traditional party structure in France. 
He came in promising a Jupiterian presidency, somewhat arrogant. His poll ratings plunged. And as you say, he's brought that back now because I think people are to some degree buying into his sort of infectious confidence about France and about France's future. And it's remarkable when you come, when you go from London, where I live, to Paris, and where for many years you would be going from, you know, a country, a city, London, that prided itself on being the sort of center of the, glo- the world's global capital, to a rather sort of sleepy backwater in Paris, it feels somewhat different right now. Paris people are incredibly confident. People feel that France is sort of awakening again. And that's in large part due to Macron. David Frum, is there a lesson from Macron for uh, centrists, for establishment uh, candidates? Uh, You know, is there something we can learn? I think there are two things you can learn from Macron. Uh, The first is Macron has been a voice for, though, I mean, neoliberal has been a bad term for a long time, but he is promising at least market opening economies, uh, measures in France, in order to uh, deal with the problem of chronic youth unemployment. Um, Just as our, the great problem in the United States is while you can um, you can get work, you can't get paid. In Europe, you can't, and especially in places like France, you, young people can't even get work. Although they do get they do collect pay of various kinds. He has also shown um, a fairly tough face on immigration, um, and he has been willing to steal the issues, go a certain measure uh, to steal the issues from these uh, populists. I mean, populists don't get to be populists by talking about things people don't care about. They talk about things people do care about. They talk about them irresponsibly, provocatively, um, you know, in ways uh, laden with all kinds of ugly feelings, but they seize on real issues. And the challenge for responsible candidates is to say, how far can you go? The analogy I keep invoking is the way Um, politicians of the center-right in Europe dealt with the challenge from communism in the 1940s and 50s. They didn't say the communists are talking about nothing. They built social insurance networks to take the communist supporters away from them. Zanny? There's one interesting comparison that I've been playing with, which is, and David's absolutely right, Macron is in some ways himself a populist. He has, and he's really got an agenda which in its substance is very, very different to Donald Trump's, but in the sense that he wants to make Europe great again, it's not entirely dissimilar. And the comparison I've been playing with is whether Macron is a bit like Teddy Roosevelt, back a century ago, a man who wraps a progressive agenda in a kind of cloak of national greatness. And in Macron's case, it's sort of European greatness. And I think there might be something to that. And, and he is an outsider. That's fascinating. So a different kind of populist to beat populism. Thank you both very much. Fascinating Thank conversation. Um, next on GPS, the Dow Jones Industrial Average set multiple new record highs this week. Stocks aren't alone. Almost every asset class is booming right now. So is it a Trump boom or a Trump bubble about to burst? A great debate when we come back. Remember the word bubble. You heard it here first. I mean, I don't want to sound rude, but I hope if it explodes, it's going to be now rather than two months into another administration. That was Donald Trump at an Iowa rally two years ago in December of 2015. Well, Trump now feels very differently about the same elevated stock prices that are, in fact, even higher. He tweeted in October, stock market hits another all-time high on Friday. $5.3 trillion up since election. Fake news doesn't spend much time on this. Well, this real news program, otherwise called a news program, is going to spend some time on it. Is this a Trump boom or a Trump bubble? Joining me now are two terrific experts, Morgan Stanley's Ruchir Sharma and Abby Joseph Cohen from Goldman Sachs. Ruchir, 
put this in context. What, how do you describe the, you know, the situation right now but with, with, with markets all over the world? Exactly. So I think that the, there's been a stock market boom which has been going on really since 2009. This has been the weakest economic recovery on, um, on record and yet the strongest stock market boom on record. We have never had a boom which has been this calm and in terms of this big relative to how poor the global economy has done. And over the last year, it's been turbocharged a bit because the global economy too has had its best year since the global financial crisis ended in 2008. But you're still saying that the, the growth levels uh, don't support this kind of massive rise in stocks, bonds. Exactly. One statistic here which really concerns me. 30 years ago, the size of the global economy and the size of uh, financial markets across the world was about similar. Today, the size of financial markets, like stocks and bonds mainly, is three and a half times larger than the size of the real economy. And so now for me, that really is the big risk. It's not the economy, but the, the overgrown size of financial markets across the world led by the U.S. Abby, how do you see it? How do you, what, what do you think of the economy and the markets? I have a somewhat different view, in large part because it's important to say, what was the starting point? Um, and in 2009, share prices were extraordinarily depressed. If you look at valuation models, you basically say at the prices then in the markets, what was being priced in was another five to six years of severe recession. That didn't happen. And so when we take a look at value models, looking at earnings, cash flow and revenue, we would say the stock market's not cheap today, but we don't think it's overpriced. But when you look at the market's rise in the last six to seven months, you know, what we are taught is the market is meant to reflect economic fundamentals. So what has changed in the last six months that is producing this massive rise? There are two things. Number one, before the election in the United States, as it often does, the stock market pulled back a little bit. And we think that regardless of the election outcome, there would have been a noteworthy rise in share prices just because the election was over, number one. Number two, there has been a reacceleration in U.S. economic activity. It began before the election and it has become more apparent since. And very importantly, I think we're at the point where we have sustainable economic growth thanks to the improvement in jobs. Final thought, Richard, which is that you, you point out it's not just stocks that are up. All asset classes almost are up, right? Yeah, so that's the difference, which is that uh, historically, when you had a bubble in the market, you could sort of see it because there was one sector or one sort of uh, asset class which was up, like stocks in 2000, real estate in 2007. The problem this time is that all asset classes are up simultaneously. That's never happened before in terms of the valuation. And, it's all, and the entire underpinning is low interest rates forever and lots of liquidity from the central banks. You get any disturbance in that sort of underlying equation. And I think that we have a big negative feedback loop which comes uh, to haunt the economy. And I feel that risk is there next year that a lot of central banks across the world are going to start withdrawing this liquidity that they have pumped in out there. And there's a very wide gap between the economy and the stock markets. I think that runs a risk of basically closing in. Well, I admire uh, both of you for, uh, for actually articulating very clearly what you think. We will, of course, have to have you back about six months from now to see where we are. Thank you both very much. Next on GPS, TikTok, TikTok still need to shop for some holiday gifts. 
Well, I will give you my recommendations, the GPS top 10 for books and films that you're sure to enjoy. The rise of right-wing populist parties across Europe has been the subject of much discussion on this show, and now a study has mapped out their collective progress with fascinating precision. It brings me to my question. On average, how much has the vote share of European right-wing populist parties grown in legislative elections over the past 20 years? Is it 50 percent, 80 percent, 130 percent, or 220 percent? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. Now for the last look. Hanukkah is almost over and Christmas is nearly upon us. In case you've been naughty and haven't shopped for the bibliophiles on your list yet, I thought I would give you some suggestions. Consider it a GPS top 10. We'll start with an author recommended by President Obama right here on GPS, Yuval Harari's Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. Fascinating look at how technology is changing what it means to be human. For the history buffs on your list, I'd recommend Nigel Hamilton's Commander-in-Chief, FDR's Battle with Churchill, 1943. This is the memoir that FDR would have written had he lived. Seven Brief Lessons on Physics by Carlo Rovelli explains complex concepts like quantum mechanics with grace and clarity. Derek Thompson's Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction, tackles big questions like, why did Game of Thrones take off? The Vanity Fair Diaries was my guilty pleasure for the year. In it, author extraordinaire Tina Brown describes what it was like to live at the center of the roaring 80s in New York City. Fiction fans will love The Remains of the Day by Katsuo Ishiguro. It is one of the best novels by a living author that I have read. And for the political junkies out there, Edward Luce's The Retreat of Western Liberalism is about the decline of the democratic order in the Western world. Very sobering. There's one last book to recommend, my own, The Post-American World 2.0. I wrote the book long before the rise of our current president, but Donald Trump has made the book's predictions come more true than I ever imagined. I've thrown in a few films and television shows to round things out. Deutschland 83 is an absolutely gripping Cold War spy thriller from Germany. You can find it on Sundance and iTunes. I promise you it is worth the subtitles. Documentary fans will not want to miss I Am Not Your Negro, a fascinating window into America's race problem told through the words of the profoundly gifted James Baldwin. And Novitiate, a film from Sony Picture Classics. It's my final movie recommendation of the year. It is a beautiful film about a young nun who tries to make sense of a changing Catholic church in the 1960s. Finally, don't forget to treat yourself. Subscribe to our digital newsletter, Fareed's Global Briefing. It's a present that will arrive for free in your inbox six days a week with the best insights and analysis about the world. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is D. According to a study released by Bloomberg, right-wing populist parties across Europe have on average increased their overall share of vote in legislative elections from 5% in 1997 to 16% in 2017. And where are they the most influential? Hungary. Together, Prime Minister Viktor Orban's Fidesz party and the even more right-wing movement for a better Hungary, or Jobbik, won about two-thirds of the vote in Hungary's latest parliamentary elections. In the European Parliament, the gains of the populist right have been even more staggering. It now controls 15% of the seats, five times more than it did in 1999. 
Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.